I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, everyone. Hey, everybody. Hello. It's the three boys from the podcast that you listen to. And we're here to tell you we're doing a thing that maybe you can come to. We're doing a couple things. Uh, what do you want to hit first? Let's. I mean, we got like some show dates, but this is sort of, it's a show that we, that it... Uh, it's not a show. It's next weekend, exactly. Well, oh, actually... Well, well, that's a different thing. But yeah, sure. Okay, do that. Okay, so I mean, chronological? On Sunday, July yeah. 14th at yeah, 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 12 yeah. noon, Atlantic that's, time. That's next week. In Halifax. Uh, that's this coming Sunday. This, this coming Sunday, uh, July 14th, is... Uh, we're going to teach a yoga class. I mean, we've talked about this mm-hmm. uh, for a while. Taylor, Jeremy, and I, we're all yoga teachers. Yeah. Um, we are uh, teaming up with one of our... Idols, heroes, uh, Lori Brown from yeah. Pondercast, and uh, and her formerly uh, of CBC The Signals fame, her partner Joshua Van Tassel, a Juno uh, nominated uh, electronic dude, composer, composer. There you go. And uh, it's going to be a special Yin practice that we're going to teach, and uh, basically we'll teach you the yoga. But while we put you into those sweet, sweet restorative yin poses, uh, our our lady friend, Lori Brown, is going to tell some fucking stories. And Joshua Van Tassel will, will basically uh, make your ear holes come. And yeah. it's sure to be epic. Sure to be epic. But super limited space. Uh, when tickets go up, keep an eye out on our... We're, we're, we, it's a last no, minute ticket. pulling together. Yeah, tickets they're up. up. Tickets, tickets are, are up. up. Okay, never mind. Tickets are up. You can go to our Instagram and uh, hit the link in the bio for tickets. <laughs> Wow, that, yeah, fuck, that's yeah. the official that's tickets it. are up sound. Uh, so, and they actually might be already sold out, so go check it out now. Honestly, that's, super, that's people in Halifax. Super it's, limited yeah. space, quick, so quick, fucking quick, quick. grab them. Wow, grab this, is, we're, we're really, uh, this is the worst yeah, announcement of show. Yep. So, so now, now we'll talk about something else that's happening in like a couple of weeks. What's the date, Brian? Uh, Sunday, or sorry, Saturday, July 21st, Sunday, July 22nd. Yep. Well, that, we <laughs> fucked that up. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna be <laughs> it's Sunday, July 21st at 9.30 PM. It is at Zoo Fest, uh, slash off JFL in Montreal. Uh, there's a, they're, they're doing a podcast thing. Uh, we're going to be there. There's tons of fucking huge heavy hitter comedians. I think Ari Shafir's got a show. Oh, uh, that means tickets are for sale. Andrew Santino's doing a show. Um, our buddy Mark Mark Little, uh, you know Canadian icon com- comedians doing a show. So we're gonna be doing uh, we're gonna be a part of Zoo Fest. Uh, I don't know a fucking thing about it. All I know is that we're performing on the Spotify stage. Uh, get your tickets. Go to z- just Google Zoo Fest or something, and we'd love to see you there. We've actually never done anything in Montreal, so this is our Montreal fucking. Uh, show for this summer anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, and again, that's uh, Sunday, July 21st at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. And for all you freaks out there, uh, the next night, Monday, Bridie and I are doing a show, a Turn Me On performance. Awesome. At 
ZooFest as well. So uh, go get your tickets at uh, ZooFest or uh, Google that. Yep. And is there any any other foreseeable dates that we have? We do, but we can talk about them later. We're gonna no, g- fuck it. No, we're going. We're going right. to be in Calgary at some oh, point fuck. in the fall, and like <laughs> yeah. we might as well might as well let them know we're going to be out there. You can't buy anything for it. Right. The horn hasn't gone off. All right, but- here we go. Uh, Banff. We're going to be in Banff uh, speaking at a conference. We're going to hang out there. If you believe in Banff, we'd love to see you. And we're going to do a show in Calgary. We're going to do a show time. in Calgary in September. We're going to be in St. John's, Newfoundland. Motherfucking St. John's, On Newfoundland. my birthday. That's my birthday. On in, in October. Almost certainly we'll do a show in St. John's then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got, uh, and that's, you know, we, we can, we, there's some other things in the works, but we'll, yeah. I, we just haven't updated the board. Just just tickling, you know, just okay. tickling our All fans right. and with if a you, little bit and of news if, there. And All if right. you really want us to come to your city, just keep, just keep donating to Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's start to this week's episode. This is a this is a this is a heavy hitter. It's already a long episode. Um, uh, we almost pushed two hours on this one, and it's a it's incredible, incredible, um, heartbreaking yet eye opening, beautiful story. Um, uh, we hope you enjoy it. David's a wonderful guest. His accent, I mean, really, I just wanted to listen to him speak the whole time. Yeah, me too. Um, so we hope you enjoy this. We love each and every one of you, and. Uh, if you're in one of those cities, uh, come out. We'd love to see you. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Sick Boy Podcast. Okay. Right. Dave asked us to do that. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is David. He's suffered unimaginable loss and is a death and grief counselor. Let's talk about it. So like it, it makes a huge yeah. difference if you're talking you're like right up in on it. here. If I'm trying can, to kiss the microwave, basically. yeah, 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 yeah basically. Yeah. Uh, we don't, we don't, we never clean these right things, and a bunch of sick people it. coming all the time. So it's uh, <laughs> so therefore going to catch something. Yeah, yeah. 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 Enough, and we switch, okay? we switch yeah, this, we switch this Maybe outer part. So if you who has it? What's your headphone, Brian? Is this you? Yeah, that's me. Yeah, okay, that works. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, fight, fight recap for uh, before we start, or <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's let's change. You know what? Fuck, sick boy. Let's change our podcast right here, right now. Uh, hey, welcome Taylor. to UFC two thirty nine. Welcome recap. Welcome back, Taylor. Yeah, dude. Hey, it's good to it's uh, welcome it's back good, to the world. It's good to be uh, it's good to be it's good to be back. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm on the road. I can I can get my ass. To the office. You can wipe your ass now. I don't have to wipe your ass anymore. That's nice. <laughs> you know what? I didn't take a shit for two, 10 to 12 days. You told of, me this. Because of the Dilaudid. That's crazy. 12 days? Yeah. And I took, la- I did, I took laxatives. I started taking laxatives and they didn't work. And then like they, were like, they were like light, light ones. Did and you then take I, too many? And then I took Senna and, it was, and I took too much and it was really bad. Like well, I had, what made it bad? It, like, what made it bad? Brian, here, one second. Let's just recap what he said. He didn't shit for 12 days straight and then took too much laxative. Okay, I understand that, but was it like it he was literally- bad because um, the the quantity of stuff coming out of your butthole or like the tightness of like the well, way that things are moving and feeling in your belly Senna, or like Senna also no, Senna no, is very the amount um, of wiping that you had to do and the rawness of your butthole. I mean, the, the amount of wiping that I had to do. There right. are several layers to it and the wiping definitely added up. Oh no. <laughs> See guys, you got to get a tushy. I'm telling you, you guys got to get that bidet. 
Yeah, it, that, that would have saved me some chafing for oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I just got like crazy, crazy stomach cramps because like basically it's like, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how, how it works, but it would, it, it sends your stomach into like contraction and like, and you, you, you have a fucking bowel movement. And I, like it was, it was just so aggressive and intense. Those like, those like cramps. And then I got like mega crampy. It was just, it was awful as fuck. It's pretty crazy to think about like what 10 to 12 days of meals would look like. Like if you laid them out on a table <sighs> and then it wouldn't and, fit on this table. And then you took all of that food fuck and just me. put it into your belly. And you went, stay there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we got the shit uh, conversation out of the way uh, because I feel like we're probably not going to be talking about shit too much uh, in this episode. Uh, is it Dave or David? What do you what do you what do you prefer? Well, I'm David, but being in Canada, you instantly become Dave the second you introduce yourself as David. <laughs> yeah, right. Say, oh, David, nice to meet you. Nice to meet oh, you, hey, Dave. Dave. How, yeah. are you, how are you doing, eh? All right, then David that it is. is. I'm calling you David I for sure. I think that is the funniest thing. Where are you from? You got, you, is that a Chinese accent that I... No, no, <laughs> it's uh, South American. Oh, yeah, right. That's what I thought. Uh, <laughs> Scottish? Are you from Scotland? Yeah, I'm from Bang in the Middle of Scotland. Uh, that's the name that's of the, the, name the, of the town, the bang, town? In the, bang in the Middle. Bang in the Middle. Bang in the Middle. Might as well be. Uh, what's what's the town called? A uh, small town called Denny. Denny. Denny, yeah. So when I see the Denny's restaurant around, I'm like, that's my hometown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think we're about to start talking about shit again because Denny's, <laughs> Denny's restaurant yeah. makes me shit. That's is that, movement inducing. Uh, how long does it take to get to Loch Ness from there? Uh, probably about an hour and 45 minute drive. And how, how far from Greenock? From Greenock. Greenock. <laughs> It's a pretty decent accent. I know. I, on there. You know what? Uh, so I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be fucking honest with you. It's gonna be hard for me not to like <laughs> replicate your accent. We, in theater school, we did this project called the Donor Project, uh-huh. and we had to follow someone who immigrated to Canada for like a month and like learn their mannerisms, learn their their accent, and and I just chose my roommate Jamie from Greenock, and it was and then so <laughs> and then you had to you had to be them during a class. You had yeah. to like perform do a, a monologue in there as them. And you invite your your donor to come watch, and Jamie sat and watched, and he's like, "Dude, that wasn't fucking bad. It was, it was pretty good." So That's anyway, really funny. yeah, Greenock is a whole different accent game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's tough. Even I can't understand it. Sometimes. Really, it's pretty tough because they speak so fast and twangy. Yeah, it right. Is, it's tough. Yeah, you should. Be, yeah, following his like uh, his Instagram is. He's a plumber in Greenock. It's, it's a fucking mess. It's a mess. Um, but I guess okay. that's what happens when he, wait, he didn't go to theater school, did he? Jamie? No, fuck okay. it. I thought you were going to say he went to theater school. I was like, no, he's a plumber in <laughs> Scotland. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Uh, but David, we, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm two things. I'm excited. I'm, I'm also a little bit nervous because um, we, we read your application the other day. And man, you got a fucking hardcore story, yep. and um, uh, I know that you you now do work in in sharing that story yep. with others. Um, I, what, like, I feel like the best way to go into this is just to dive into the the story from like early days. Yep. Um, uh, well, I guess we're here to talk about. Yeah, grief. we were just thinking to do your keynote actually, so uh, we'll just sit back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll yeah, right right take it away. 
<laughs> well, we can start at the beginning. So I was born on the 26th of March, 1987. I weighed 7.2 pounds, was born in Stirling Hospital. Yeah. Okay, all right. Jesus Christ. <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> yes, at the beginning. Who was the attending physician? <laughs> Dr. Campbell, genuinely. But, uh, yeah, uh, well, first of all, thanks, guys, for having me on. Yeah. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Um, love the work that you guys do. A uh, big fan of it, so pretty much an honour for me to be here. Yeah. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, so yeah, like you say, I have a bit of a hardcore story. And yeah. uh, most of my life now is trying to share that story and hoping that it's going to benefit other people who might be going through something tough in their life. Okay. Um, so I'll take you guys back. So obviously from the accent we've already discussed, uh, I was born and raised in Scotland uh, and came from, I'd say, a relatively modest family. Um, there was myself, uh, my father, his name was Graham, uh, or Graham, as if uh, you pronounce it in Canada. <laughs> yeah, it's not makes, the same pronunciation at all. Graham. The spelling makes so much more sense in the way that you say it. Yeah, totally. And you yeah. guys call it the McKay Bridge. Everyone listening, it's the Mackay Bridge is the correct pronunciation. <laughs> it's very Scottish. It's like Mackay. White, like white Mackay. White, like white Mackay. That's, right. That's, That's it. it. Um, so yeah, my father, Graham, uh, my mother, Maureen, uh, and then I had an elder brother, Jay. He was about five years older than me. Um, so yeah, life in the beginning was pretty modest for a Scottish family of four, I would say. Um, I was a reasonably good and competitive football player, and I've been in Canada six years, but I refuse to call it soccer <laughs> when I say it for the first time. So when I say football, it means soccer. Um, so I was pretty competitive, uh, and then at the age of 12 was kind of at that stage where I was starting to get picked up by teams like that were professional outlets and, and whatnot. So like, were you a bit of a phenom? You no, know, like, were you? I wouldn't say I was a Connor McDavid type sure. phenom. Okay. You know, I, I, I don't know the, the best person to relate my skills to. Um, but, but you were yeah. doing good. Yeah, maybe a Phil Kessel phenom. Sure. Right. Okay. Yeah, right, yeah. There you go. All right. Phil Kessel uh, was pretty highly touted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. But I was, do I was doing good, um, and my dad, he would come to every single game, uh, and then my brother and mum when they could. Um, and then I had this really big game. This was on September the 30th, 1999, which is crazy to think that that's going to be 20 years ago Ooh, in a couple well, of months. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, that's trippy. Um, so I had this huge game, uh, and I knew that there was a bunch of scouts going to be there to watch, which was obviously exciting and fucking nerve-wracking at mm -hmm. the same time. And then before the start of the game, I was looking around for my dad to see where he was because he came to every game without fail since the age of four. And I didn't see him at the side. And I was like, oh, that's weird. He should be here by now. So the game went on. And then every five or minutes or so when there was a break in play, I'd have a look to the side and see if he was there. But he didn't show up. And then half time came and he still wasn't there. Then the full-time whistle went. I had an absolutely shockingly bad game. So anyone that was watching to see if I was going to be a phenom would have been highly disappointed. <laughs> and did you have a bad game? Um, did you have a bad game because you were kind of like looking out for your old man? Do you think? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I always liked the idea of. Um, it didn't put pressure on me, but I definitely liked the idea of performing for him yeah like it, it was yeah. comforting to have him there and like it's yeah. just because he wasn't and i was so used to it, it was such a routine it just threw kind me of off, threw again. off i could very easily have had a bad game whether he was there or not i just i feel like that was the main reason mm. so i got to the end of the game and he still wasn't there uh where we were playing was like a 20 minute drive from back home so one of the other dads who was there watching he said oh i'll, I'll take you home so as soon as i walk in the door my mum is there she's like where's your dad 
I said, I don't know, he never showed up to football. And then my mum's face just instantly turned chalk white because she knew that something was wrong for him not to make a game. Mm. And like they, he obviously hadn't spoken to her or communicated with her, so she just knew something was wrong. So it transpired he had gone for a, a jog uh, earlier that morning, like he commonly did. He was quite a healthy and active guy. He was 43 at this moment. Um, so he went, uh, it's like a nearby, kind of, I'll call it a mountain, just for the sake of it. If you guys saw it, you say, that's a mountain. But in Scotland, we would call it a small hill. Yeah, right. So he had gone for a jog here. So my mum called the police uh, and said, this is not in his character at all. Like, he, something must have gone wrong. Like, I know this is where he was going to. Can you send a car there to see if, like, his car is, like, parked at the bottom of the mountain? And the police said, yep, sure, we'll go check it out. So they went and his car was there at the bottom. So instantly there was like a sort of small missing person uh, search party, Mm -hmm. um, but they couldn't find him. So we got to that night and hadn't heard of him. All we knew was that his car was still parked in the exact spot where he'd left it to, to go the run that day. Then the next day came and it turned into like a very large missing person search party the police called in um, the mountain rescue team who had like, a bunch of helicopters going and they were scouring the hill trying so to figure out where they were. It is a mountain. Yeah, so we call it... it, it I, could, yeah, I can yeah. picture it. I can picture it in my head. It's like, like think about... think about. I'm, I'm picturing, and, get, and correct me if I'm wrong, how long have you been here? Six years. Okay, so I'm picturing like um, Martok with less trees and a little... Uh, like. A little bit more, like pointy. maybe like like Martok and a half, right? That's probably like the a, best way to sum it up. And like maybe like maybe a lot of like rocks, like a yeah. went, like a Wentworth, yeah, uh, but, but even bigger. They didn't call the small hill rescue team; they called the mountain. They called it the mountain rescue team. Yeah, or they, they are mountains, man. They're, they're, we, Brody and I climbed one when we were in Ireland, and I was like, <laughs> she was like, it, they call it a hill, and I was like, this is a fucking mountain, dude. Like, there's not there's nothing at the we're top, basically yeah. in the Rockies. Yeah, sorry, continue. No, that's <laughs> were, were you a part of that search party? No, I wasn't at the time. Um, yeah, like, what does that look like yeah. for a 12-year-old? So for, you know? for me, initially, I'm trying to make sense of it all. Like, I just, I've always been a fairly positive person. So I'm like, oh, he'll turn up. Like, yeah. he'll, he'll be fine. Like, uh, the idea was that he must have had fallen somewhere on the hill when he was running and was trapped somehow. And he just couldn't call for help, couldn't move. So that was Ooh. why it turned into, like, a 50-person search team. Is that like, is that, are they, like... Does a search team look like a, just a bunch of people combing an area? Pretty much, yeah. You know? Yeah, with like air support above. To right. Do you know, you know when, you're, when you're that age, I, I kind of had this experience that, so I always felt like my life when I was a kid was kind of like that storybook, like middle class average upbringing. And then all of a sudden my, my parents got divorced when I was 15 and it like totally like shook the fabric of my existence because like, everything that I had known to be true up to that point seemed like it had just all of a sudden like changed in the blink of an eye. Yeah. And going into that experience, like I was so naive to any like conflict that my parents were experiencing because what I had thought to be true my entire life was the fact that like, Oh, my parents aren't divorced. Like I know people at school with divorced parents and like, that's not, that's not my family. Yeah. Yeah. So when was, did you kind of feel like in that moment that, like, oh, there's no way that my existence, as far as I know today, could be any different than, like, having both of my parents be here? Yeah, pretty much, because it, you're, we're all creatures of habit, right? And we, it takes a long time to get used to your new environment. 
So as the days go by <coughs> and we still haven't found them, all of a sudden the the national press picked the story up because oh, wow. basically a guy has just fucking vanished yeah. off the face of the right, earth and they no one can find, find him, right? him anywhere. Right? Yeah, they can't, they can't find him. And they've combed what they say at the time, every inch of this hill, mountain, whatever we want to call it. <laughs> they've combed every inch and they haven't found anything. So Ooh. they start to think, well, what else might have happened? So another week passes. And then the story that's now running in the national press is missing man may have faked his own death. Like and reputable press or like tabloid na- like Fox press. News or like... Wow. Well, in Scotland, uh, we don't really have an equivalent because we think all our journalists and newspapers are shit. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to put a finger on it. But the, the like most popular publications were all picking it up. So people were reading it. Wow. And obviously, like when you read something, obviously it's true. Yeah. Man, right? what, are you thinking, what are you thinking at, at that the, point? At the time, I'm... Now thinking, well, what if he has done that? Right, like that. Like I, I don't know because they because you haven't sure found it, him. They haven't found him. So who so knows? If things start to go through your head, and then there was another story that um, he had been unfaithful to my mother, and they had ran away with this woman who had apparently came out of nowhere and gave an interview to the newspaper saying no. I had an affair what? with this guy. Whoa, yeah, dude. What some yeah. people will do yeah. for a minute in a, yep. in a like for a, for a few lines Holy on a paper f- column, and this was twenty years ago. Wow. You know? That's yeah. crazy, yeah. And, and also, like, then where is he? <laughs> like, yeah. they weren't even getting Instagram yeah. likes for that shit back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, yeah. So all these things are going through the press, and then maybe at the four week stage, still absolutely no sighting of him. Um, there's a bunch of people in England, like four and five hours south of my hometown. Apparently, there's like a sighting there, and then the local constabulary there goes and investigates. Not him. There's a sighting somewhere in Ireland. They go and investigate, not him. So he basically, he's just completely vanished. And all of a sudden, if I'm, if I'm being honest, the faking his own death thing started to make the most sense. Because right. in the papers, you read it's like, oh, like it, maybe it must be like an insurance like scam mm-hmm. or something. They're trying to get insurance money, and right. he's going to swim back ashore two months from now, and everything's going to be fine. And so, meanwhile, all this is happening. What's what's um, you know, you're trying to make sense of it as a 12 year old, your brother's, you know, almost 17, 18 years yep. old. You're like, what, what's going on with him and your mom? Like, how are they, how are they handling all this? At the time, my, my mom has always been the most positive person you could possibly imagine. Mm. So at the time she was super positive and she was super focused. She wanted to make sure that the police and the search teams were doing their job. Because she obviously knows he's not committed insurance fraud because he would have told me oh, that he was yeah, doing that yeah. and I would be complicit in that. Um, she knows that he's not being unfaithful because she likes to think she would have found that out. Right. Um, so she is just focused on, he's on that mountain, we need to find him. Um, and my brother at the time, he's, he was a very quiet reserve, we'll call him a gentle giant almost. Couldn't get much of a read on him. I mean, as a 12-year-old, my people skills and working out psychology of what yeah. people were thinking wasn't as sharp as what it might be now. Mm-hmm. Um, but from what I could see, he was dealing with it okay. Um, he was he had left school. He was now working full-time. But he seemed to be doing okay. Um, and then it got to the six-and-a-half-week stage. And six then and six and a half weeks. weeks. And at this point, the police have scaled back their efforts entirely. They've gone on record as saying he is not on that mountain. Right. He is not there. We're following up lines of inquiry, but the 50-person 
team all of a sudden shrunk to two. And that was it. They just they assumed that he had found some way to fake his disappearance and wow. they just were not looking into it. Then on November the 15th, uh, 1999, so pretty much exactly seven weeks to the day that he went missing, um, a shepherd was walking on this mountain. Of course a fucking shepherd was walking on the mountain was in Scotland. He had goats. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he had goats. He had, <laughs> and he comes across this area that's, um, because it's now getting to like winter time, Yeah, the all the growth has kind of started to fade away and he notices what looks like a badly decomposed body. And he goes and tells the necessary people what he's found and they go up and, uh, yeah, that was my, my dad. He had fallen into an area of the hill that they had missed when they were searching. The helicopters, the 50-strong search party, they just didn't find him. And then... Um, they maintained that they might always find something when the trees and stuff like the leaves started to fall off and the bushes started to fade. Right. They maintained they might find something, so that was their line as to why they didn't. Mm. Um, but yeah, they they missed it, and then, uh, like you say, a shepherd found them. Now, was there a, was there like a? I mean, obviously there was there was a post mortem sort of examination, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Did they were they able to determine? What happened? Like, yep, they discovered he had, had a heart attack. So he had a heart attack while on yeah. on his run. While on his run, yeah, right. Um, okay. From my mum told me, and I mean, she's obviously going to tell me that he didn't suffer for any period of time and wasn't like calling for help <laughs> and stuff. Um, but they said it was pretty instant. Like it was a pretty bad um, cardiac arrest. And yeah. There wasn't much hope of him surviving it. But it, it was a. He was forty three. He was a very keen runner. Uh, reasonably healthy, good, mm-hmm. good shape. But yeah, he had a heart attack and fell into an area of the hill that made it difficult to find him. For. Do, do you remember the the moment, I imagine after six and a half weeks, like there starts to become this like, is is there that urgency to like, for something to happen like that day? You know, like after when six and a half weeks goes by and you're and you're looking you're looking for your dad, does it eventually start to become a little bit more like, okay, this is going to be our existence now for a bit of time? Yep, you, kind of like that. You always have that hope in the back of your mind that like today is going to be the day that he's just going to walk back in the door and, and that'll be that, right? But so, then what's the, that, so what's that moment like when they show up to actually tell you that? So they, they came to, to tell us that they had found a body, first and foremost. Um, they weren't looking for anyone else on the hill at the time so it was very obvious that it was him uh, they hadn't um, they had to identify him through his dental records um, so they yeah they said we, we're pretty sure that this is your husband and your dad was there um, any was there any comfort in the fact that he was found there was comfort in the fact that he was found but uh, that day still to this day would be the most I've ever cried in my entire life and I don't think I'll ever cry as much as that again because yeah. At the same time as it was a bit of a relief to know that he was found, that hope just kills you because you think, oh, he hasn't been found, he's not on the hill, he must be alive somewhere. So the confirmation of that was, yeah, that was heart-wrenching. Yeah. And, uh, was that your first like intimate experience with death too, with uh, I had, close? No, I had lost a grandparent before that, um, okay. so I knew a bit about it. I was age seven at the time, so I knew what was going on, but it's something like that, I mean was severe yeah that was my first time really really coping with it happening and having a huge effect on me because um and i've always uh been attuned to my mum and how she feels and seeing 
her reaction when she found out because she's so super positive. She thinks that um, he's going to turn up alive as well. And now she knows that he's not coming back. Seeing that was just, yeah, yeah that set me over the edge. I had uh, with that, that, that idea of uh, that, like, that sense of relief, like, because, you know, you know, him being found obviously then tosses all that shit that they were writing in the papers at the window and you can go, he didn't fake his death, he wasn't doing this, he wasn't doing that. I had this weird, this weird, like, it's still awful, but there's like this weird sense of relief experience the other day when we were talking and you, you, Jeremy wrote me and said, um, this person that we know has cancer, but he used just one name to just to say who it was. And I thought he was talking about somebody else. And I thought he was talking about somebody else that I was much closer to. And I was like, Oh, Oh my God. That is, that's, I immediately called Jeremy and Jer- and I was like, man, so like, how did you find, like, how did you find out what it, whatever I said to him? And then he goes, what it kind of gave it away in, in whatever I said. And he and he goes, no, it was this person. And finding out that it was this other person was like, was who's still someone like that, that I know yeah. and is awful that he has yeah, cancer. Yeah, yeah. But like at the same moment I was like, Oh, so that means that the person that I thought had cancer doesn't. Yep. Yeah. And like, that was this like relief. But at the same time, like the guy that has cancer still has, still has got it. Yeah. yeah. And it was awful in both scenarios, but I was like, Oh, just it was so it was so weird. Yeah, it was so weird, and I immediately I went. Oh, God, I feel weird. I feel strange. Yeah, closure is. I mean, it's a. It's sometimes it is glorious, but sometimes it's it can be. You know, just hearing that story right there, like that is mm. so gut wrenchingly, yep. fucking like. It's devast- it, it's devastating. Yeah. You know, like I I I it, it it's it's hard to it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear. Yeah. Well, cuz I can like hear it in my head. You know, yeah. like I can hear 12-year-old David like wailing, you know? And, and we can all put ourselves there, you know? Like we 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 were all, you know, we were athletes. We all had fathers that took that took a, a mm. whole lot of interest in the things that we were doing. You know, we can put ourselves there and go, I can, you know, sometimes when we go, oh, I can't imagine what that would be like, you know, when we're being nice to people about the bad <laughs> things that happen. Well, that's what people do. You're being nice. Yeah. You're, you're trying to be nice by going, I can't imagine. But we had the conversation with Estelle that was basically like, no, you can imagine, and it's better that you do yeah. because then we can be relate. We can relate to each other, and because I can, I can, although I can't experience it this, to the to the its fullest extent as you can. Like, I can, I can imagine what it would you be like put to yourself, lose my father as a yeah. kid, and it would, and it would be, it would be, it would be hell. How, um, how in the in the because I know I know the story is uh, this is just part one, and it, there's uh, there's much more to it. But uh, before we move move further, um, how how in retrospect do you, do you know how that that experience had an effect on you? Like, how did that change you as a twelve year old boy? 
Um, it made me grow up really, really fast. Yeah. You know, um, when you lose your dad that young and you see what it does to some of your other family members, like it, it devastated all of us. So it matured me really, really fast. So age 12, I had just started high school and I'm going through adolescence and starting to get interested in different things like you do at that age. Um, it made me grow up really fast. You know, I, I realised that almost even age 12, I couldn't be a boy. I had to start thinking about becoming a man because, yeah. You, so. went, you went straight to the jewelry store, bought an engagement ring. You're like, first girl I see, first girl I see. I need to be married. I need to get married now. I'm a man now. <laughs> I guess similar. I really wanted my driving license age 12. But no, it just, uh, it puts a lot of perspective on things. Um, mm. And then I had my mum who, <laughs> so her job, she was a, a stress consultant um, and a, I would say a very good and a very popular one. So she was well-placed to recommend certain things to do, to think, to say. Like She would always make sure her conversations were positive and try and get us to talk about it as opposed to keeping the feelings in. Mm -hmm. So instead of shutting off and thinking, oh my God, this has happened to me and this is the worst thing ever, it was almost instantly, what can you learn from it? Because shit happens, you know, you have to deal with it. It's not going to change, he's not coming back. So how can you use that experience to move forward because you're at a Mm. pivotal stage of your life. You're just beginning high school. Mm -hmm. You want to be successful and make the most of your life, right? I mean, I'm still into football at this point. You know, I'm still a reasonably good player, have aspirations of becoming a professional. So I said, yeah, just just carry on the way you did and try and use this experience for a positive moving forward. So Was it weird socially? Uh, it was like for weird. friends and stuff? Were it they was, like, holy fuck. It was David. weird socially. Like the, the best example I can give is when he'd been missing for about four weeks, um, I went a walk to what we called the shop and you guys called the grocery store. We <laughs> call it the shop. Uh, and on my walk there, I walked past a bunch of guys, well, kids that are my age. And obviously this is national news. Everyone knows about it. Um, and I'm walking by and like they say, oh, like, hey, David, how's it going? And as I walk beyond them, someone says, so what do you think happened to your dad? And I'm like, oof. And I just went completely blank. And then one of the other guys said, well, I think that he's done a runner and he's not coming back. And I'm Fuck. like, oh, that's man, so intense. Kids, kids, kids are, are mean, rude. right? Oh, so especially mean. in that age, man. Yeah. And 12 you, year olds are shitheads. Yeah. And you guys are dealing with Canadian kids. Scottish. Yeah, that's right. Whole different ball game. They just go straight for the heart, right? Yeah. So interactions like that happened. Amongst like my main group of friends, uh, they were all very understanding, uh, very supportive. Uh, my closest friend just now, he, like we were good friends before that, but he was the one that kind of stepped up and would always come and get me and walk me to school mm. and just make sure he was there. I think his mum and dad were mm. the ones who said, you need to be by his side because he's gone through a tough time. But yeah, my, my closest friends, they were, they were fine. So it was just the kind of ones on the outside that, it was kind of awkward interacting with. Yeah. Because I only took a, a week off of school. Um, so for the seven weeks that he was missing, I was at school for those six weeks. Mm-hmm. So I was in class and I'd know that people were whispering and talking and some of it was sympathetic and some of it was, well, I think this is what happened. Yeah. And, Did you, you know, feel like it kind of like became your identity in, in, in a sense, like I, that's how I have been feeling a lot of like since I got hit, you know, well, mostly like what you're saying, yeah. not to my immediate friends, but like yeah. the outside circle, like the outer circle is kind of like it's everything's about how I'm doing and they're just being sweet. But like, yeah. you know, 
everything's about me getting hit by the car. Yeah. It's like that's yeah. my life now until it kind of fades away. Yeah. Did you feel like that yeah, was I felt, your like that. I felt like I became that guy whose dad went missing for seven weeks and then was found dead. And yeah. I felt like that was what I was being labeled as. Yeah. You know, and it takes a while and you get over that and yeah. you, you kind of try and move on from it. But yeah, I mean, people would avoid conversation with me because they didn't want to upset me. Yeah. And I've always been okay and open and talking about it. But other people, you know, like they, they just can't comprehend that level of sadness. Yeah. So they'd rather avoid it than Absolutely, have yeah. a conversation about it. How old when you were saying you were you were a few minutes ago, this popped in my head, I'm glad that it came back. Um in your work with um with grief yep. and this is a conversation that we've had uh that we've had I think on the podcast and definitely off of it, is like how is there an age limit to uh, uh, how young we should be talking to kids about death? Um, I would say, based on my knowledge of the way the conscious part of your brain works, anything younger than eight is probably just naturally not going to get it. And in between the kind of age of eight and 12, I think there's work that can be done there to get people prepared for it, or if they're going through something, mm -hmm. to help them through it a mm -hmm. bit better than they would. Uh, age between two and seven, like your your brain is running crazy. You're trying to make sense of everything that is going on. Yeah. And something like that could either have zero effect at all or completely alter your personality as a kid. Ooh. So I would say stay away from age two to seven and then eight and above. Might be worth a conversation. Definitely a 12, 13, 14-year-old. I'd say no problem to yeah. have those type of conversations. Interesting. It's so interesting too. Because I think of like that... That's that's a, a really um, fascinating way to look at it, that 8 to 12 range, because um, I think of when you said that your friend would like come and walk you to school and, and he was doing that mostly because probably his parents told him it would be good to support you that way. Like Most kids that way wouldn't or don't have the capacity to be like, this consciously nice. thinking like, oh, this will be the result of me doing this. And the reason why I'm doing this is because like it, it's just you're told do this thing yeah and you know that it's the right thing to do but you don't fully comprehend like yep. why it is the right thing and then as you you get older and older and older you start to like piece those thing, things well, think, together like, but, like, i mean think about how important it is how, like when you when you say that like how important it is to have like a, a solid family it's like because mm -hmm. there is a time where people are going i'm telling you the right thing to do right now and you're just going, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and like if, if in that time where you're taking those instructions because you can do the things but you can't come up with the things of what you should do, if someone tells you go do this and that's not really what you should do, then those are the habits that you'll form and take on into your life or you're more likely to later. You know, If you don't have somebody going, this is the right thing, go do this. Now I know that this isn't the, the first time uh, – this isn't the only time that you you had to deal with some pretty hardcore loss. Um, kind of alluded to it earlier. This is like part one of a multi-part story. Um, how? When was the next? When was the next um, big loss in your life? So, kind of like after everything happened, I'd say probably took six months before it started to feel like normal family again. I would say where we kind of. Realized that he was gone, wasn't coming back, and we're starting to like make kind of future plans and adjusting to life without a minute. 
then on September the 2nd, uh, the year 2000, we were at a family wedding. Uh, to, my cousin got married. And my mum, brother and I were all there um, and had a absolutely spectacular evening. Like it was a, probably the first time we had been out together as a family, like at a public event like that. And I just remember it being amazing. Like it was a Scottish wedding is a lot of fun. I don't know if you guys have ever been to one, but you're going to have a good time, guaranteed. I have been. Yeah. And it's really fun. Yeah, they're, they're good. <laughs> so yeah, we, everything seemed fine. Uh, my mum was fine. My brother was fine. He was... Uh, he was 18 now, so he was he was able to drink booze. That's the legal age in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the so at a Scottish wedding, um, everyone wears kilts or skirts, as some people like to call them. <laughs> some people think that we dress like that all the time, and that's how we walk <laughs> <I> around. <know. laughs> so <laughs> so funny. Um, so yeah, so on the Monday, so that wedding was Saturday. On the Monday, the 4th of September, uh, we had rented these kilts. So my mother and I were going to go back to the store to return them. Um, and that morning, uh, my brother was playing a PlayStation game. And I remember I was going to stay and play with him. And then I said, actually, no, I'm going to go to the, the store with, with mum and return these kills. Um, then we came back um, and my neighbour was outside in the garden. So my mum was talking to the neighbour. And I went uh, to go upstairs to like play the PlayStation game with my brother. And as I'm kind of, so you walk through the kitchen and then turn left and go upstairs. As I start to go up the stairs, I look up and uh, it's uh, very obvious that my brother has taken his own life. Um, As you see uh, from our attic, there's a rope tied down around his neck. Uh, It was a blue taekwondo rope. Um, And I just paused for a second and was like, what, like, what? Mm-hmm. It was just totally, totally unexpected. And then I don't know how to this day why my next thought process was this. But I thought, mum's outside. She can't see this. That was where I went to within 15 seconds of analysing what had gone on. Holy fuck. Like, she cannot see this. So I uh, took steps to make it look not like what it was. So uh, I say, what was it? helped him down. Um, untied the the rope and then lay him out there and I had the presence of mind to check for a pulse I don't know how or where that came from Um, but from everything I could see was that he he was dead, he was chalk white and then I waited maybe another minute and was like okay, you need to go tell your mum what's happened, so I went downstairs and she's still talking to the neighbour in the garden and I just went and I said you need to come inside now. And she could see from my face that it was very, very serious. I was like, I think Jay is dead. It's like, what? And I was like, you need to go upstairs now. So she runs upstairs and she now sees the scene that I have created and not the one that I originally saw. Um, and Whoa. then like, she's obviously screaming and shouting and like, checking for the signs of life so yeah. she immediately calls the ambulance and the, the ambulance comes and then by this point the neighbour um, has come inside as well like wondering something serious must be up so yeah the, <coughs> the ambulance show up and they they take my mum and brother away uh, my mum goes in the back of the hospital uh, the sort of the ambulance with her and I went next door to the neighbours and I'm sitting there knowing that there's no way that good news is going to come back 
And yeah, my mum comes back to that house maybe three, four hours later, having gone through the formal identification process. Um, when they asked her what had happened, she said, I don't know. Um, I'm guessing that the doctors noticed some kind of like marks on his neck. And Ooh. I think that they were probably able to ascertain that it was suicide. Um, but my mum was adamant that there was no way that could have happened, uh, that he would never have done something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was actually, his death was recorded as uh, unknown on his birth certificate. Wow. It was recorded as unknown because oh she, she argued it that strongly. It was just recorded as, as unknown. Did they ask you? They asked me some questions, uh, but I basically said, this is what I found. I flat out lied about it and just that became my story. Yeah. What, what, was, what was it like knowing that she was, like talking to your mom and knowing that she was so adamant that it wasn't that and knowing that it was, did you feel like guilty about what you had done or did you feel like you had done the right thing and you were protecting her? Felt like it was the right thing. Mm-hmm. And, and to this day, I feel like it was the right thing. Part of me thinks that she knows that yeah. you know, he very well may have taken his own life, but the story I chose her to see and the story I think she believed is uh, even now my conscience is, is quite happy with what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I shouldn't have kept the, the lie up for so long, and it, it's only in the past couple of years that I've actually started talking about this because I used to tell people the, the other story. Um, so I only just got comfortable sharing this, right? Um but yeah, it's uh What was it like for you the first time to say that out loud to somebody? I absolutely was crying hysterically. Oh, when I when I first said it because it yeah. was uh, it, such a release. I had never said those words before. And it was a I call it a positive release. Like I felt a huge weight off my shoulders Ooh. that I didn't recognize was there anymore because I just I got used to. This mm-hmm. is a story and this is what people believe. Um and then I just I said, you know, one day I, I can't tell this lie anymore and it just it came out and mm-hmm. I shared it uh, the, by the way you tell this story and I, I know that it's so it's it's been so much time has passed for, from now to that experience it sounds like when you're in the the heat of the moment that it was almost like uh, just a, a, a methodical kind of response to dealing with the situation that lie in front of you were you in hysterics when you were trying to like I don't deal with I, that? I don't think I cried. And and do you think that your previous experience with your um, dad's death played a role in how you handled that situation? Absolutely. But the the primary reason for me doing that was I did not want my mum to see him like yeah. that. That was the main reason. And like I said, I don't know how as a 13-year-old I was able to process that in yeah. my mind. But all that mattered at that point in time was she can't see him like that mm-hmm. you know and it's, it's sad that it was me obviously I mean it's you know no one wants to see something like that mm-hmm. but in my mind no she she can't see it and I need to make it look like something else wow. was there any like um I, I mean I, obviously this came out of nowhere um did you did you put much thought into why why you, your brother took his own life. Like, was um, there was there signs where you went, "Fuck yeah!" You know, he was he was really struggling, or nothing like that. There wasn't any like, and I have a reasonably good memory of around about that time. But when I go back, his, his personality he was very quiet and very reserved, but mm. popular amongst his group of friends. Um, 
he was doing okay in life and I wouldn't say there was anything like the point and say that's someone who might take their own life however that's what is that's I guess that's the common way that a lot of people take their own lives is there is no sign of it yeah. and it just happens one day completely randomly <coughs> when we were going through his room and like his, his drawers and stuff after just to see if there was any kind of sign of anything uh, we did find some receipts from ATM um, and there was like a lot of like small withdrawals and I know they like to spend time in a gambling store like um, betting on horse racing and stuff mm. like that so part of my mind then was like well I wonder if he was in debt because of gambling like the, so yeah. I never gave much more thought to it but mm-hmm. as far as reasons go that kind of made a little bit of sense at the time based on what we found um, but no there were no immediate signs anyone who saw him at that and that's why I told the story about the wedding on the Saturday anyone who saw him there and then would think that that could happen like two days later like just no chance yeah. absolutely wow. no chance that was a, a guy who looked over what had happened to his dad was getting on with life was happy and capable of having a good time so yeah there was nothing nothing yeah. to suggest that was about to happen mm. I mean it's just like it's 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 somebody you never know what's going on in somebody's in somebody's mind like it's it's yep. near impossible i mean you know, who knows what his what his thought process was you know from the year in the year that since your dad had passed away and um you know like similar to how you know you could you were you were walking around with this with this you know i know that i sort of kind of like altered the way things were to make it look a certain way for my mother and and no one know, and no one knows that until you say it and yep. like it's not written on you and you know there's no there's nothing that's going to point to that 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 something that you're keeping something yep. or you know similar to him it's like you just never yep never absolutely know. what's the legalities behind that the legalities yeah don't know yeah it just never became uh a serious question i guess yeah uh, once it got recorded as unknown it kind of just got swept under the rug as, yeah. as far as i know and does it um, has it stayed that that yeah, way yeah it stayed that way yeah yeah it stayed that way um on the gonna get raided once this podcast comes out swat <laughs> just busts through they're like we found him oh well, i guess I guess canada does do extradition so. <laughs> yeah um, it's, it's interesting because uh was it uh jared in edmonton yeah, and like he, so we we spoke to this guy who's a death investigator, and he basically said to us like, you can as a death investigator, if you show up at a crime scene and see the way that a body's laying and it's been moved at all, there's like a hundred percent telltale signs that yeah. it's been moved. Yeah. So I wonder if people knew. I think they knew, and they just thought. I think they knew. I think because what? So because there was um such police involvement with what happened with my dad and the, basically my mother could have sued the shit out of them for stopping that search party so fast because oh, he was really? on the hill right? right they they said he's not there right. they were on record in the news saying he's not there so and like who knows if he was like trapped yeah exactly alive. right so the like the police chief was very fearful that after he was found that my mum was going to like go to town on them and say like give Mm. them a bunch of bad press essentially right but she was very respectful of it she said there's no way that you guys deliberately didn't find them and this is just life now right yeah so she could have taken them for a ride if she wanted to but she didn't so when it happened with my brother it was the 
similar investigators and people she knew mm. that were dealing with it. Mm-hmm. So I think they, they kind of cut her a break on telling her, yeah, this might be actually what happened. And because she was so adamant and wanted it to be recorded as unknown or an accident, they just let her. They, they kind of just chalked it up to, well, we kind of screwed up back then with her husband. Mm-hmm. So we maybe this is our way of doing some good and giving her some kind of, I don't know if you call it closure, but yeah, mm-hmm. just, just a way of almost saying sorry for what happened before and saying your version of events, that's the one we're going to go with. Mm-hmm. And the police agreed with it and the legal system agreed with it. And mm-hmm. that's just the way it was And until I, I guess I started talking about it yeah. a couple of years ago. When it, when it comes to grief, um, what did your grieving process look like after your brother's death? And was it different than the grieving process after you lost your dad? Uh, my grieving process with my brother actually happened in the bathroom of my neighbor's house whilst I was waiting for my mum to come back from the hospital. So I just remember going to take a piss and looking at myself in the mirror and I hated what I saw. Like I looked ghastly, like I was crying, like just obviously I've gone through a traumatic experience, <coughs> but absolutely hated what I saw. And then in that moment I realised you need to grow up even more now because it's just you and your mother. And she has a huge responsibility on her hands now that she's only got one kid to raise and no husband to help her do it. And you're at that age where things are going to go one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So I made a promise to myself in the bathroom that I was going to be strong and I was going to get through it no matter what. And then that night, once we had confirmed that he was dead and started to let the family members know, uh, everyone came to her house to like, offer their condolences and just chat about things, I guess. But as I'm sure you can imagine, it was a very sombre and quiet room. Mm-hmm. And I remember I hated that and I didn't want it to be like that. So I went and made everyone tea and coffee and gave everyone whatever they wanted and then just started talking and chatting. And as soon as I did that, other people started talking and chatting. And then it kind of just, days went by and things started to seem a little bit better. Um, But the grieving process for my brother was almost instantaneous. Mm. I had already had experience of something unexpected and severe happening to the detriment of your family. So when this happens, I was like, well, that's tough shit, part Mm -hmm. two. You just have to get on with it. And because that was my mindset straight away, I was able to do it. Mm. Uh, And I I don't think my mum was expecting it to be like that. Um, But I just got on with it and grieved almost instantly. Do you think your mother had a similar experience? She had a very similar experience, and I think we were probably in the same boat. She's probably thinking, I need to be strong for him. Uh, I'm thinking, I better be strong for her. And we kind of just fused it together. And I don't know if it's the way I would recommend dealing with something like that, but we got through it. It's it's interesting, too, because like there's like strength... Strength doesn't necessarily mean putting on a mask and and pretending that everything's okay. It, strength can also be breaking down and crying when you Absolutely. need to, mm-hmm. and and being open and vulnerable with your feelings. Because yeah. if you're if you're if you're not doing that and you're bottling it all up inside, then you know chances are it's going to come out in a way that mm-hmm. manifests in a way that's yep. completely unproductive. Absolutely. And one of the things I, I noticed that I became kind of happy about was that people kept on commenting on how strong I was. And I didn't, when I heard that, I didn't think, oh, if only you knew what was going on inside, I would think, I am really strong. Like, this is amazing that I'm dealing with this. And I would take it as a huge compliment and use it to fuel me because I almost wanted to be an example. So I kind of, 
I, I saw the positive in it right away. So I wanted to keep on being strong because I like to be told that. We all like to have positive affirmations yeah. told to us, right? Like it feels good. So that felt good to me. And then it just became a reason to keep being that way and keep appearing to be strong. And then I realized I'm not appearing to be. I actually am. Like I'm just dealing with this very, very well as a 13-year-old mm. adolescent kid. And uh, I think that that did a lot of good for my mum who must have been absolutely terrified about what life was now going to be like yeah. dealing with that, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, I still don't know at that time she realises exactly what happened to my brother. So we never spoke about it, but maybe in her mind she thinks, well, what is David going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, how is he going to cope with this? So it was just a very conscious choice. Deal with this and get on with life. Now, um, did you... Uh, did you ever have that conversation with your mother? Did you like? Did you ever tell her the truth? Because you you said that you have only recently started talking about it in the last couple of years. Um, was that something that ever came up between you and your mom? No, we ne- I never told her the truth. Never spoke about exactly what happened that day. Mm. Uh, we would speak about some elements of what we went through in the aftermath of both my dad and my brother. But we never specifically spoke about that day. It was like we had a, a agreement, a silent agreement to just not talk about it. And mm. if we had to, then we would and we'd be comfortable doing so. Like we would share happy memories. We chose to do that as opposed to... We had our entire um, like life from age 5 to 12 for me on video camera. So we would watch tapes mm. once a week just to remember their voices and stuff like that mm, mm-hmm. so no that was like our way of reflecting and mm-hmm. I guess dealing with it Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break Hi I'm Jesse Crookshank Jesse Crookshank I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend Girl Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. You, you so, you know, fast forward a little bit. Um, you, you grow up so quickly, 12 years old. Uh, you know, you buy that that engagement ring. You go, you throw it on some lassie, and uh, and then you know, thirteen years old, you go through this with with your brother. You you end up uh, turn, turning into an adult, a real adult, uh, and you take a career path. You become a cop. Was was that a? Um, I became a cop when I was twenty two. Okay, yeah, twenty two. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and does was that like um? You know, you were you were just saying how how you started to identify as the strong individual. Um, did that, did that at all play a role in like what you wanted to do for, for your career, you know, becoming a police officer? Not at all. The, the reason I became a cop is because the UK was in recession at the time. I was just out of university and that was the most secure job that I could possibly imagine. Mm. Um, I, I guess we would have to go back a bit as to another reason why I needed to get a full-time job. But essentially, it was because it made the most sense at the time. Mm. Uh, the town that I come from, or um, anyone listening from the town, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, but we're not very 
friendly with the police. They don't have the highest opinion of them right. um, for a number of reasons, some valid, some not. Um, so it wasn't a career choice that ever entered my mind up until I need to get a stable, full-time, reasonably good paying job. Ooh. Do you think yeah. that you're, uh, you're, it sounds like you're quite like pragmatic? Yeah, I'd with, say so. yeah. Do you think that that's because you grew up so fast um, in your adolescence that like it, it made sense to, I almost think that like you, you want to take on responsibility and do what is a responsible decision. Do you think that's shaped by your experience as a yep. kid? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a, a bunch of other variables, uh, into which I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but yeah, I, I would say. Yeah, I was just trying to psychoanalyze you, to, but I, yeah, I feel like I, I <laughs> Go ahead. Where you're at. Okay, great. Go ahead. Thanks. <laughs> Um, and I know in your application, you were, you mentioned how, um, you know, you took on this role in, within that job to basically volunteer to be the person who, who gave the news to, to people who, um, who might've like lost a family member. Yep. If there was a death in someone's family, you were the one to show up to inform them that yep. someone had passed. Yeah. It was, um, Half volunteered, half voluntold. So the first time that I had to do it, um, the cop that I was with, he said I did the best job he had ever seen someone doing it, and he was 25 years service. Um, So I kind of got a reputation as being good at delivering bad news. Um, And obviously that's a job that no one in the police service wants to have to do, to show up to someone's door. Um, I just had a way of relating in my own mind as to what they might be going through, and I knew what I would want to hear uh, being given that bad news. So I would just go and relay it the, the best way that I could in the most professional way and the most understanding way. I realized that I've gone through it a lot, but my situation is completely different to everyone else's. So whereas people might say, oh, you've gone through way more than I ever did, that's not necessarily true because we deal with it differently. Yeah. So I'd be respectful and, and polite and just make sure that the information was communicated, which a lot of... Um, a lot of my colleagues struggled with because they couldn't get over the the difficulty of the task at telling such bad news to people. It just became, uh, I don't say it became easy for me because it's probably a disrespectful word to use, but it just became something I was naturally quite good at doing. Yeah. Would yeah. you ever, um, would you ever find yourself getting in conversations and relating some of your experience to people or was it always, was it always just your experience informed the way that you delivered news or did it ever become like a, a only only if they asked okay right. so if, or if it was relevant to talk about it yeah. you know i mean i have that in the the back that i can use and say well i have a bit of experience dealing with this but like i say that that is it means nothing to people when yeah. they're just hearing yeah. this bad news yeah. right yeah. like they they don't give a they don't care what you've went through yeah this is their family and you're a guy with a police uniform on at the door yeah. But I was able to use that almost silently in my brain to fuel the conversation to go the way that it should go when people hear that news. Yeah, Because yeah, there's a procedure to be done and identification needs to be done. Like There's so many boxes you need to tick from the police point of view. Um, and then I had that experience when I was 12 about maybe the police not necessarily doing the best job when informing people of bad news. So I kind of use that as fuel as well to... Mm. do a better job than maybe what they did when well, we were talking to Jared in uh, in Edmonton and like the idea that the person that <clears throat> the person that talks to you and relays that news is 
Like if someone's going to stand out on that on that day when something life altering happens to somebody's family, like the person that tells you that news is going to be the stand, probably the standout character from like you know all the shit that's going on. That's going to be something that really stands out. So to have somebody who can like really tactfully and respectfully, um, skillfully deliver that news to, to somebody, you know, like you know, Jared was talking about how like he's still in contact with some families. Like they send him cards and say, you know, thank you for being that. Thank you for being like a rock for in like this crazy whirlwind of a day that we went through. And, you know, you just did such a great job. Like I, it's such a, it's such a heavy and important mm-hmm. task. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was about to say I can't imagine, <laughs> but like you're so nice. I can, I can, I can, and it's and it's like kind of shakes me a little bit, you know. Like yeah. thinking about did did um, did you have conversations like that with uh, any of your friends in like high school and stuff who had perhaps lost uh, a loved one at the time? Like, was there was there anybody that you had a conversation similar to the ones that you would have when you'd show up the door and 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 have to let somebody know that their loved one was no longer there, but it was, did you become that kind of guy in your group of friends when something bad would happen that they could lean on? We don't do the best job in Scotland of talking about our feelings openly. Um, I, I don't know why that is, but there's very much this uh, mentality of, oh, you'll be fine. Just pick yourself up and you'll be fine. Go play so, golf, rugby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of people just, they don't like to speak about it. But the ones that did have stuff happen to them, when I would have a conversation with them, I was able to use what had happened and mm-hmm. hopefully help them through a little bit of it somewhat better. And I guess because they saw the way I was dealing with it now that I'm like 16, 17 and doing reasonably okay in life for someone who's gone through so much, they probably like maybe they saw it as an example of how they can be and I, I, I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But yeah we, yeah, we don't do the best job of talking about our feelings. So it's... Uh, Sorry, were you going to say something? Uh, yeah, uh, but go for it. Okay, I was, was going to just continue the story along. But. Okay, yeah, I was just going to ask. Uh, there was one thing that I wanted to bring up earlier too, um, but you mentioned that your mom, when you were talking about your mom earlier <laughs> on, you mentioned that she uh, worked in stress counseling. Yep. Um, and you kind of said that after your dad passed away, she had checked in with you guys to make sure that you were doing okay. As When your brother passed away, did she kind of use some of the tools that she had from yep. her work with you to to make sure that you were doing okay? Once things settled down uh, after my brother, so we we moved house. Um, part of the reason being that we just we we kind of felt the house was unlucky, right? But uh, my mum wanted me to be closer to some of my friends because she felt that was going to be good for me. Um, we didn't live far away in the grand scheme of things, but the house that we moved to was much better location. Like I had one really close friend three doors down and the other one in the street behind. Um, So after things settled down and I guess moving into year 2001, uh, my mum sat me down one night and she said, here's what we're going to do now. We're going to write down our goals and our affirmations and what we're grateful for. I was like, a 14-year-old kid at this point. I'm like, no. (laughs) We're absolutely not going to be doing anything like that. We said, no, trust me, this is going to help you. We're going to write down what we're grateful for. We're going to talk about our goals and our affirmations and we're going to do it every every Sunday after our TV show that we watch together. And we did that every single Sunday. 
And the stuff that we spoke about then was, I guess, her way of checking in on me and, and making sure that I was talking about things, being open and addressing any concerns that we might have had, right? Mm. So that just became our thing from, from then on in. Did, did you feel that you're, you became closer to your mom? Like when, and I guess the best way for me to, to relate um, is through my experience in dealing with my parents' divorce. Um, but I know that my mom and I's relationship prior to my parents separating was pretty strained. And afterwards, um, we became like way closer and it was a result of like realizing, Oh, okay. Like we really need to be here for each other now. Um, but I also, my relationship with my mom became almost more of like a, a friendship in a way. Like she was, she's definitely always been a parent and still is, but, but, um, I definitely felt my relationship with her switch at 15 from being mother son to almost like mother son slash friend. Yep. Did you have that experience Abs- with your Absolutely. Mom? I would have called my mom my best friend. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Uh, we just, we were always pretty close. We were a close family. But after that, like you just get, I don't know, you go through something like that together and there's only two options. And mm-hmm. It's, you know, fight or flight. So we, we fought together. Mm-hmm. When so, you, uh, if you're go, continuing on that, go ahead. Well, I was going to push the story along too, but um, I was—I don't think I told either of you guys this. I've only, I think I only brought this up to one other person since I since since I had it. But when you were talking about the affirmations and you know how that helps, and you ha- kind of got this practice of doing it, um, I took this um, I took this investments course recently, and uh, and you know completely everything finance related. But the guy that was delivering it had this um, had this really. Uh, I had this really extensive background in a lot of mindfulness and like meditation and all this stuff. And then he kind of infused like this money, the, the, like the topic of money with, the, with a lot of mindfulness, which was really it's interesting. like money, your eighth chakra. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the next one that they never talk about. Unlock your financial <clears throat> potential. <laughs> and, uh, and he was talking about, um, he was talking, he was, he was giving this kind of like end keynote to, at this, at this course. And he was talking about this, um, this billionaire investor in uh, in Japan, who he got to meet towards the end of this guy's this guy's life, and he asked him like, "How did you become so successful?" And you know what, like if you had to narrow down your success to like one thing, what would it be? And the guy says, "Maru," and he then goes on to explain that Maru is a is like a, a practice of of being grateful a thousand times a day. And that he would look for, he would look to invest in companies where being grateful was infused into the company at every single level. Because if great, if being grateful and recognizing what you are grateful for was a ingrained habit of everybody and at every level of a company, then they know it'd be, they'd be successful because gratefulness kind of breeds happiness and contentment. And how like that was, and he and he didn't say like you know I look for this and these financial indicators and all this stuff. It was like gratefulness like if i can see that in a company then i know it's going to be successful and how important that is in like every fabric of your being and how you go about living your life on like every level absolutely it, it helped me get through my teenage years yeah being able to do that and like at first you're like what the hell the is this? dumbest thing yeah. like at 14 I, yeah. I would just go 
no. Yeah. I, I never <laughs> yeah. swore at my mother once in my life, but I came close when yeah. it would be 8 p.m. on a Sunday, be like, time to do your goals. Yeah. That's just, that's just, <laughs> I, it's just such a, your goals. it's such a far-fetched idea at that age. Like yeah. I remember when we would do goal stuff oh, in school yeah. and you just go, oh, goals, those are so dumb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I love them. <laughs> Um, uh, so it, we're kind of, kind of like backtracking a little bit here, but, um, part of the reason why you became a cop, uh, to, to, and, and, you know, threw your, yourself into that line of work was, uh, to basically financially support yourself and your mother while yeah. she was going through cancer. Yeah. So when I was 18, uh, and I was taking my final high school exams that were going to determine whether or not I could go to university. Um, just a, a couple of days before my first exam, uh, my mum came home one day from like a, what I thought was a routine checkup at the hospital. Um, and she had that look in her face where I knew something was wrong. And she said, I'm really, really sorry. I was like, why are you sorry? What's wrong? She was like, I had my appointment today and they found something. And then they went and they, they did testing on it and they found out that I have a very large tumour on my, on my breast and I have breast cancer. And they need to operate on it almost instantly or it's probably going to kill me. And at this point, my mother and I have now five, six years together of coping with what's happened. We are, like we alluded to, extremely close. The relationship was as, as strong as what I imagine a mother and son one could be. And now she tells me this, and obviously it was devastating again. And straight away, we just we had that positive approach where you're going to go, you're going to get your operation and everything's going to be fine. You're going to recover and, and that's going to be that. Uh, so she actually went for her mastectomy uh, on the day that I was taking my exam. And I said, no, I'm, I'm still going to go and take the exam and damn right, I'm going to pass the exam. And then I'm going to come to the hospital straight after and check in on you. So I went and, and took the exam and side note got a really good grade on it which was nice congratulations thank you um and i went to the hospital and it was supposed to be maybe a four hour procedure um so i got there at maybe like 2 p.m she had gone under the knife at 9 a.m that morning and then she didn't come out of the operating room until closer to 10 p.m because it was just such a complicated procedure that they they were surprised that she survived the operation but ultimately they were able to remove her, her breast and from that they removed the cancer and then yeah it was uh i'm like okay now uh, my mom is dealing with this and i'm just about to finish high school and go to university what's our life plan now um and then at this point my my mom had actually been seeing someone kind of i don't know how serious it was like is that way like my dad is still always going to be my mom's husband for life but there was someone else involved um, so he was kind of there as well and he got the news and he came up and was very, very supportive and very helpful. And then we, yeah, she came home from the hospital and now we know she's going to go for extensive chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Um, and then after about a month, uh, the guy that she was seeing, um, he actually went into the hospital and they found a huge tumour on his kidney. Jesus oh, Christ, no. what the fuck? And two weeks later, this guy passes away. Whoa. What? Yep. Two weeks later, passed away. So after my... Oh, my God. Two weeks after the operation that your mom had? Two weeks after After, the operation he had. So this would be about six weeks after. Whoa. And my mom 
Uh, like I, at this point, is your mom just like fuck. laughing at it all now? Just like, is it like, this is a fucking joke. Come so, on. So we had actually, when I was probably like 15, 16, <laughs> we were on a vacation and we were talking about what we had gone through. Mm. And mom said, we should write a book about this. <laughs> I was like, what would we make the book called? She said, no fucking luck. So we were just adding chapters to the book. Yeah, right? yeah. So, and I, and I, I like this guy. His, his name was John, a lovely guy. Um, I don't know the intrinsics of the relationship, but they seem to enjoy each other's company. Um, but she actually went to his funeral a couple of days after her first chemotherapy session. Oh, fuck. Um, so, yeah, like it was a, another one of these shocks. But uh, at this point, you you become almost conditioned to expecting bad news and just Ooh. dealing with it. Um, and then, I mean, it wasn't a long-term relationship, but still, obviously, yeah. heartbreaking from, from my mum. Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, she, <laughs> she goes for her chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And, uh, yeah, like, the, like I say, a couple of years go by. By this time, I've gone to university, uh, and I'm also working uh, coaching football slash soccer, <laughs> and and working at a restaurant. So I'm probably working maybe thirty hours a week, as well as attending school to to get my education uh, while she's recovering because she she cannot work. Um, by this point, she's um, she's lost all of her hair and is is wearing a wig. Um, I told her that she'll never be on shampoo commercials, but whatever. <laughs> um, we had that kind of sense of humor between us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like just life started going by and uh, I finished university and my mum is now getting close to the five-year remission stage and she still can't work full time and we, we never were a family of money. Like there was, a lot of people think that I was able to get through the stuff that happened with my dad and brother because there was some financial security there, zero. We were not a well-off family at all. Mm. We just we got through with determination and grit. You know, was, we had bills and debt like everyone else. Mm. So now I'm at the stage, finish university and need to get a full-time job, one that pays well. I'm doing that with the idea of being able to support the household because my mum simply can't earn enough money to keep us afloat. Um, so that's when, yeah, I decided to apply to join the police. I did that in January of 2010. And by the time April 2010 was there, I was at police college mm. and I became a police officer. Did 16 weeks of training and then unleashed on the mean streets of Clickmanninshire, Scotland. Wow. Say, say yeah. that again? Clickmanninshire, Scotland. <laughs> wow. Yeah, say it one more time. Quick, I could, I can't you do it, Taylor. You can do it. Do your best Scottish accent. I don't do a good Scottish yeah, accent. Yeah, you do. You, no, think you did don't. it last night. You were, you were doing it last night to prep for today. <laughs> no, I said something. I can, uh, I can, I can't remember what I said. I'll teach you the best thing to say if you want to try a Scottish accent. Okay, so I'll do it kind of generic North American so you understand what I'm saying. Okay. So, burglar alarm. <laughs> now you're going to say it as burglar alarm. It's not bad. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, um, yeah. I, I joined the police to essentially keep her house going, yeah. and then kind of fell into the career. And to be honest with you, I, I loved it. It was um, it was a great job. I don't think there's a job with more variety than mm. being a cop because it's nine a.m. and you're you're doing nothing, and then it's nine thirty and you're helping someone resolve a neighbor dispute. It's 10 a.m. and someone has been stabbed, oh. and then you have to go deal with that. And then that's you, early in the morning to get that's stabbed. That's early in the morning in Clipmanninshire. <laughs> trust me, yeah. that's late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it's just an unbelievable job. And from what I had gone through experience-wise, 
I was able to take some of the horrible, horrible stuff you see as a cop and then almost push it to the side because in my mind, I've dealt with way worse because yeah. it happened to me. Mm -hmm. This is other people's lives and their situation to them is the worst, but to you, you know you can deal with it. So, I mean, I, I can't even tell you guys some of the like people and bodies and things that you see when you're a cop, but the best way to sum it up is you see the people that don't make it to hospital. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a, a horrifying, but also a very, I guess and call it rewarding experience because it helps you kind of understand what you're capable of dealing with mentally. Mm -hmm. So the, the police was a ideal job for me based yeah. on life experience. Have you ever been to any actual like therapy? Uh, so I'll, I guess I'll continue the story with, with my mum uh, and kind of, kind of wrap sure. that up. So, uh, less than a year um, after I had joined the police service. So my mum is now getting back to relatively good health. Uh, she's past the five-year stage since her mastectomy, and she wants to get back into a stress consultant business. Um, so she makes a couple of calls. Uh, a few clients are really interested in speaking to her again because they haven't spoken to her in so long. And, yeah, she's, like, gung-ho getting the business set up. So... On New Year 2011, um, I remember we had this conversation with each other where it was basically 2011 is going to be our year because we've dealt with so much shit. We made it through the teenage years and then you had to deal with this. Everything seems fine. We're just, this is going to be our year. You're, I'm going to be a damn good police officer. You're going to get back into your business and you're going to be very successful. Then in early February 2011, uh, my mum had a really, really bad uh stomach infection of some kind so she had to go into the hospital and they admitted her and then released her because they couldn't find out exactly what was wrong so they sent her home and then overnight she was in blinding pain so they took her back in the next day and they did a full scan and then they discovered that her cancer had returned in her liver and her lungs and oh, had become fine. metastatic um, and then this would be on a Wednesday in February 2011 uh, the doctor pulled me aside into a private room and said, your mum is not going to survive past this weekend. Whoa. You need to prepare for her to die. There's nothing we can do. It's inoperable and it's advancing at a very, very fast rate. So her cancer had just basically came back to the extreme. Wow. And then I heard this news and I'm like, I guess that's the next stage in life. Uh, we next these, chapter in the book. Next chapter in the No Fucking Luck book. Yeah. Um, we... Um, we had made all these plans and now I realise they're, they're kind of, they're not going to happen now, you know, because you believe what doctors tell you, right? So they said, would you rather that she um, went to a hospice and they looked after her there or would you rather she comes home and be in like your family house where she can spend her last few days? So I spoke to my mum about it and we agreed that she would rather come and be in the family home um, and I spoke to my job and said, look, my mum is going to die, I need the time off and thankfully they said no problem take as long as you need so I went home from the hospital and got the the living room area set up, got like the hospital bed all the equipment that she needed and then they brought her home and the, we were basically prepared that weekend, she's, she's going to fall into a sleep that she'll never wake up from but she seemed it was weird, she seemed fine when she came to the house, like my mum has the best sense of humour you could ever imagine. And she was still laughing and smiling and making jokes, despite the fact that she's now got less than 100 hours to live in her mind. Mm -hmm. And 
the, that weekend went past and nothing happened. You know, she was bedridden. She was <coughs> losing a hell of a lot of weight, but nothing happened. And we called the doctors in and they said, because this is more than what we expected, but the the task right now is managing the symptoms and making you as comfortable as possible. And you still have that hope in the back of your mind that, no, the doctors have got it wrong. Like, she's yeah. going to pull around, you know? <coughs> um, but yeah, so I became her personal carer in the home. Um, had a, some family come in and help from time to time. Uh, we had some cancer nurseries who they'd come in and, like, change bedding and the catheter and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it was mostly me looking after her for that time. And I didn't know how long we had. I just know I wanted to get every single second that I could. So for the whole time, um, I probably slept maybe an hour and a half, two hours uh, a night. Mm. And then as the weeks went by and she was still here, but she started to lose her ability to speak and stuff, um, I would just spend, I don't know how long, just with ice cubes, running them across her lips, just so her mouth would have enough salivation so that she could speak for a while. And then as soon as the voice went again, I'd rub ice cubes. And then we could have a conversation. Um, and then on March the 6th, 2011, was her, her birthday, her 54th. Uh, and then she was still able to communicate and talk, was still bedridden and now probably weighed about 75 pounds. Um, but she brought in her 54th birthday. And then on March the 11th, uh, 2011, she passed away. And then that was that. Was that. She was gone. So um, at this point, I'm now, uh, I guess, an orphan is the, the right way to put it, uh, with no real family ties and back to my job as a police officer. And that was that was life, yeah. My mum was just snatched away in five weeks. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Jeez. Like how... I mean, is this, is this, are you, are you consciously thinking like it, are you just singularly dealing with my mom just died or are you thinking, are you thinking like, is this is like another layer on this? Um, both, I would say. And then to, to get back to what you were saying earlier about the therapy, if, if I had ever gone for some, so my job wanting to tick some boxes, I guess, they realize that I've gone through it a lot and they need to check off that box saying, you saw a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the only time that I ever went for any type of therapy. And it was just like a check and make sure everything's okay. Uh, and the therapist then, sits back and he goes, all right, well, uh, why don't we just start to tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your life. And then you, you take 15 minutes, tell them everything that's happened up to this point, And they're like, uh, this is a, I've never dealt. Yeah, this is a bit before. past my pay grade. Um, I th- I think I'm gonna step out. So, I don't know if this was a cop out or not from the therapist, but what they actually said to me after me telling the story and probably about 15 minutes in was, you know what? It should be you teaching me here. <laughs> yeah, is yeah. what they said. Yeah, because I I just I, I dealt with it instantly. So while my mother was still alive and able to speak. We, we planned what was going to happen after she was gone. So we actually basically designed her funeral, mm. which, uh, I, I, I mean, I'm talking like, like that's just a normal and almost a happy thing to do. But at the time, it's like you just get it done and you just, this is what she wants and that's more important than what you're going through right now because you're going to live and she's going to die. Just get this done. This is what her focus is. So planned the entire funeral and then on the, the day um, of her funeral, I gave her eulogy 
and didn't cry, didn't break down. I just gave it. I spoke amazingly positive about her and had everyone who was at the service that day um, like almost happy and laughing because I felt that was a better way to deal with it as opposed to like, oh no, me again. Like yeah. this is the end. Like I can't deal with it anymore. Mm. I just saw it as, oh, it's just another chapter in your book and life is going to go on. So do you want to respond to it positively and move forward and not let it consume you, which it could easily have done? Or do you do you want to let it basically be what people define you as, that guy who went through just a bit too much and couldn't cope anymore? Mm. And for me, there was never any possibility of being that guy. So I just just got on with it and, and dealt with it. It's wild, wild. Like, honestly, you know, I, the, I think the first thing I said when we started this was like, hey, you got a bit of a hardcore story. And it, 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 it is, it is like the most, it's the most, I just, I remember when Brian and I were reading your application the other day, we were just sitting there going, no, oh my God, what? Like how to, how, is he going to be able to come in and talk about all this? Like how's, but sitting here talking with you, it's like you, you, you have gotten through all this yep. and you are, you're still living your life. And you know, there's, it's very, um, you know, coming back to that positive affirmation, you are, you're extraordinarily strong. Yep. You're an extraordinarily strong individual. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, do you have, do you have moments? Do you have times when you, when you look back at everything that's happened to you and just think like, what the fuck? And, and have you, have you ever emotionally quote unquote broken down? Never broken down. The closest I would have came is when I first started talking about what happened with my brother. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't say there was any, like I wasn't going to break down. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always looked back on it and tried to find the, the humor in it. Um, the, the best example I can give you is at the start of a relationship when I first reveal my story because people <laughs> yeah, need to dude. people, yeah. people need yeah. to know that stuff right so I'd say just so you know, tell me the, about your family yeah, wow. yeah, this, this is what happened to my dad this is what happened to my brother and this is what happened to my mother and then they'll be obviously like shocked and not knowing what to say and then me with the sense of humour I have I'll say but don't worry at least you don't have to be concerned about the like stress of meeting the family. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And then so like you need to know your audience with yeah. that stuff, yeah, right? Totally. So like, oh. yeah. no in law, yeah. no in law yeah. shenanigans. You want to end the date real quick and you go, and you could be next. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, where, where are you going? Oh, well, okay, well. Yeah, I guess really I did consider to. that before. That maybe like, no, that might not be the best bet. <laughs> yeah. It's not a yeah. great history there. I think I'll send a text in a couple of days and say this is. But on a more serious note, like has, has all of this uh, had an effect on the way that you, um, that you accept or invite people into your life? Are you, are you more apt to like keep people at an, at a, at an arm's length than, than allow people in? No, I've always allowed good people into my life. Mm. Um, one of the things that I don't know if it came from the experience or something else, but I pride myself on being a very good judge of character and very intuitive. So Mm -hmm. I can usually spot when speaking with someone is that's someone I would quite enjoy being part of my regular circle. Um, And there's been people that I've spoken to before about what's going on and then they get very distant because they don't know how to address it. They they, they just have no idea. They can't comprehend it. So I'll try and use dark humor or like some other way to say, no, it's fine. Like I'm okay dealing with it. 
I'm okay talking about it. Um, but yeah, some people just, they, they can't comprehend it. Like some of my closest friends growing up just have never spoken a word about anything that happened with them because they just don't know don't what know to say. They, yeah. they just don't know how. And then my closest friend, the one that I was saying would, um, his mum and dad would make him um, make sure I was like accompanied going to school and that he was there for support. Um, after my, my mother passed away and before her funeral, so when you asked me about a time I've almost broken down, in between her death and the funeral was one of those times where like it just I was feeling the more negative side of things. Um, and my best friend at that point, uh, he was on a scholarship in the States uh, playing football slash soccer. <laughs> and uh, we had spoken on the phone and like he had obviously offered his condolences. He was very close to my mum as well. And the day I was walking in my living room and thinking... We had a three-bedroom house. One of the rooms belonged to my mum. And the idea of cleaning that room out was just, at that point, was just too much. And that was what was on my mind. And then I get a knock at the door. And then it was my best friend who had oh, came man. home to, I guess, I can't really say, surprise, I'm here because your mum died. But okay. he was there to offer us support the way that he was back when I was 12 and 13. So that kind of oh, stuck man. with him, Ooh. that you need, to, yeah. you need to be there in like, the time of struggle because ultimately you're good for him and yeah. seeing him there that day that would be the like a, that got me through yeah. everything else that was to come like knowing that you have that type of support there yeah and so having the, that bond from when you were younger you know like, absolutely yeah so much yeah. It, it, that brought us close together and then that just like strengthened the relationship like yeah. yeah did you so now you live in Canada um, did you come here because you know like the same way you and your mom left the the, the old house like Scotland's just not my cup of tea anymore. The, the luck is just not it's there. No fucking luck. Okay. No luck. <laughs> um, so once I realized I have nothing to stay for, um, yeah, I kind of right. want to go experience the world a little bit. So this same best friend has since graduated in the States and gone to Australia to play um, semi-professional football. And he was out there. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go visit him because I need to have a different experience in life. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went to visit him for a month uh, over Christmas and New Year 2011 into 2012 and loved it so much that I said, I'm moving here. I'm going to take a two-year career break from the police, which they granted me no problem at all. I want it to be there just in case I come back and I'm just going to go and take some time off and you know, I have no ties. I have every reason to go and experience the world. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Australia and stayed with my friend for a while and then got set up in my own place. And then that's when I realized, you know what, I want my story to not have been for nothing. Like, I have a very tragic story, but it can help people. What was the best way for me to do this? So at the time, being a life coach was an extremely popular career choice. It went from like a $50 million industry to billion dollar industry. So I was like, I'd probably be pretty good at that, helping people through tough situations. So I actually came to Canada to do a really intense course that's one of like the top certification bodies and went back to Australia with a certification and the idea of being a life coach and helping people through their struggles. So the way to do that, and I guess it still is now, is that you need to connect on social media. So I released a YouTube video. And basically, it was a condensed version of what I'm telling you guys today about my story. I spoke for eight minutes and 14 seconds, used an old Nokia cell phone to record it in like a <laughs> spare room, no sound equipment or anything, and just 
told my story to the, the camera. And then I shared it with a couple of my friends on Facebook. And then they shared it with a few people. And then the next day when I woke up, the YouTube video had 25,000 views. I was like, oh, wow. Whoa. I said, oh, wow, I've gone viral. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, interesting. And then a few more days passed. And then it was like 75,000 and then 100,000. And then I'm getting emails because at the end of the video, I had my email if people wanted to get in touch. I had emails from all over the world. I had emails from Africa, from New York, from all over Europe, South oh. America, everywhere, with people saying, thank you for sharing your story. It helped me through this. Like, mm -hmm. I, I took comfort from it. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, this was a great decision to release this video and p pursue the career of helping people through their tough times. Mm -hmm. And then it got almost too popular, and I was getting contacted off um, in Australia some TV shows that wanted to do like interviews and stuff with me. So went on one of these TV shows, spoke about my story, and then after it, the guy who was interviewing me, he says to me, you're going to make a lot of money. And you so, were like, oh. Like, mm. Are you fucking kidding me? That's what you're going to say to me? I just poured my heart out to you, man. Like, you, I'm going to make a lot of money. You think that's why I'm doing this? At this point, I'm 25. I'm like, and then I realized, you know what? This is not about money for me. Like, I, I got caught up in the popularity of the video that I lost sight of. I did this to help people. Mm. So I kind of put a stop to any, like, TV stuff and newspaper things. I was like, no, I want this to be beneficial for people. So I realized that all I had at that point was the story. I had never actually gone and analyzed why I was able to deal with the things that I did. Because now I'm thinking about it, a 12-year-old dealing with their dad missing for seven weeks and a 13-year-old finding his brother having hung himself, dealing with that is not normal. No. Not yeah. normal, but there must be a reason as to why. And then I devoted my time to trying to figure that out so that instead of just telling my story and people benefiting from that and then moving on with their life I could actually give some answers and some psychology behind what might have been going on that enabled me to do so well and that other people can use to do well. And so, ladies and gentlemen if you want that, uh, the answer to that it's four equal payments of $29.99 yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah That's, and not, if you that's call, cheap man, that's not a lot of money I, that's like, I can afford that And if you call within the next 20 minutes we're going to throw in uh, a <laughs> free toaster Yeah, yeah. So we're going to put all this up on our Patreon and if you go to head on our patreon.com So what, what did you did you find an answer to that? Not like a definitive one um, but the, the science behind habit is one of the main reasons for it and I go back to my mum making me do those goals and affirmations right. writing stuff down works like it is so helpful and like I said to you at the time I'm like what the hell are you making me do this for like I don't want to be writing down goals when I went back and realised I did it every single week and was grateful for things that were going on in life despite all the shit that had happened it was like, that's probably the reason why my subconscious is a little bit more in line with thinking positively mm -hmm. because I was taught to you do it you practice it I, pra like I actually it. I practice it and wrote it down so as much as I might not believed I was taking it in my subconscious mind was and I became a more positive person for it who tried to see the good in things and yeah. in progress and then yeah the, I did a lot of research on the amygdala which is the emotional memory part of your brain um, when we go through tough times or any stress anxiety your amygdala basically gets set off we call it a hijack and you're just you're unable to respond and you just shut down, depending on the severity of the hijack. I realized that because I had done all this positive thinking, that when my amygdala was getting affected, 
I was able to switch it off quicker and go back to the more constructive response to it as opposed to letting it you know, like spiral into something that would ultimately put me into anxiety or depression. Mm. I was just conditioned to you know, think positive. So writing stuff down and believing it is what I discovered actually helps. So from that, I went on to develop like my own goal setting and affirmation principle, which I teach all my clients. So if you do this and stick with it, I promise you it's going to help. And the people that have done it, it helps. Mm. The people that come for a couple of sessions with me and then that's it, they're not doing this. So there's some science behind writing things down and believing them mm. and following through with your goals and your plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this what you do now? Are you the life coaching thing? It's, it's, it's part of what I do now, yeah. Right. So I, I guess I would call myself a grief counselor because most of my clients are they've lost someone or, or something. Right. Um, but I'll deal with a wide range of things. Like I've mm. had clients in Australia and then all across Canada that, you know, I've had executives who want to get promoted or people dealing with a divorce and where there's a bunch of things that you coach people on, but primarily my work is centered around how to cope with the different stages of grief. Mm. So getting prepared for it, which is what happened with my mum, something suddenly happening in your life being rocked, like with my dad and my brother, and then being able to analyze something that happened in the past, which is what I did, because I went back and extracted what I could that would be able to help people. So now teaching other people how to do that and showing them, you know, it was the worst time of your life, two, three, four years ago, whatever it was, what did you learn from it? And what did you use moving forward that that is actually a positive and can benefit you in some area of your life? And most people, they, they avoid the subject of talking about it. Yeah, big time. But there's, there's so much like potential for positive extraction from the worst experience of your life. Mm-hmm. Like there's a positive spin to put on almost everything. Yeah. And it's having that mindset to be able to try and use it moving forward because it happened. It's not going to change. Mm. You only get one shot at life. So you may as well use that experience for something positive. But, and I mean, that's, you know, a big part of what we do here. You know, yeah. it's like finding in, in a way, in a bit of a different way, but finding the humor that exists in a shitty experience, yeah. you know, finding the humor that, that it, it, it is there if you look hard enough, you know, yeah, you, can, you can find the positivity. Absolutely. David, I'm, it I'm, is curi- a habit thing. I'm curious if uh, there's this, there's this kind of a principle idea that uh, my yoga teacher um, from India uh, presented to me while I was doing my training there. And he was saying that like, you really become a student of the practice when you start teaching. And I'm curious to know if your um, in working as a grief counselor and helping people go through their stuff, have you learned a lot more about yourself in that experience too? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Is there I mean, is there like one one like big thing that you've taken away from that? Like one clear takeaway? Um, I could probably give you hundreds because every time you speak to someone, they're giving you a different experience and they've gone through it slightly differently to the last person. Um, the the big thing that I took away from dealing with people and what I saw commonly pop up is. Your social circle is so important in how you're going to get through a tough time. And going through grief and losing a family member actually gives you the opportunity to identify who in your social circle needs to go Mm. and who needs to stay. Mm -hmm. Because almost everyone, this is like a universal thing, when we go through something horrible, someone always pops up unexpectedly that just is so helpful and makes a big impact on your life and then stays in your life. And for me, I had a friend that when my my mum was sick and then passed away, she was just unbelievable. And we weren't that close beforehand. 
Mm-hmm. Like she's, but she just stepped up. Like she, I don't know why, but she became really, really close to me and helped me through a, a bunch of stuff. And like if I was in the house and unable to go and get groceries or whatever, she'd say, just, I'll go get them. What do you need? And she'd bring them. And I would have expected that of other friends that I was closer to. But she was doing it. So like, no, this is someone who needs mm-hmm. to be in my life more. And then you analyze the other people who were not there. And you're like, you know what? This is a great opportunity to say, maybe I should spend less time with you. Because obviously it might be that you don't care. It might be that you just don't know what to say. But ultimately, it's me that's going through this and I need you there and you're not. Mm-hmm. So that's so common amongst clients that I deal with that they find people that they didn't think would be there. Mm-hmm. And they find out that they're, some of their closest family members have absolutely no impact on the situation because they just don't step up. No, yeah, that, that would be my, my one takeaway that I've learned and that's yeah, almost universal with everyone I've dealt with Yeah, some people just do not do what you would expect them to do in that time for good or for bad mm-hmm. out of all of this and you know this is a very similar question but out of all the, the loss that you've um, gone through throughout your life what would you say is the biggest thing that that all of those experiences have, have taken away from you Taken away from me as in as in any any you know like do you feel like you've been stripped of anything um i, I mean de- obviously a family yeah i definitely got stripped of a, a normal upbringing mm. um but in being stripped of that i was given the opportunity to help people who it's might so not be able to, to process it's so hard to ask David that question because his entire life has been about creating yeah. positive affirmations around challenging situations I mean the second this, it's a two part question the second question is what's, what's the biggest thing that it's given you uh, the biggest thing that it's given me is perspective on what's important in life uh-huh. uh, and the ability to believe that it can cope with anything because you couldn't give me a scenario that I would say for me personally that's going to be worse than what I've already gone through like I I went through as as bad as it's possible to do so when you've done that you now have this perspective on okay well other things that might seem pretty tragic are not as tragic anymore and you can kind of progress through life with some of the stresses the trials and tribulations with a different perspective on it so it doesn't seem to bother you as much like telling people when I was a cop that their family members were dead like I said it wasn't an easy thing to do but I was able to do it because I had my own experience. Mm. It put everything into perspective for me. The flip side of that, uh, the thing that I guess came from all of this that I don't necessarily like all the time, is it's very easy for me to appear to not care about things as much because they don't bother me the way that they might bother other people. Like anything like like financial concerns, I never had any legal concerns, at least in, unless you get in touch with the guys and say, oh, this is actually what happened with his brother's body. Maybe you might <laughs> want to investigate that. Um, so <coughs> like stuff like that that would affect other people, I don't get as bothered by it. And I can understand why some people might be annoyed by that because they think, why aren't you stressed about this? You should be. And in my mind, I can't be because it's nowhere near as bad what I already dealt with and got Ooh. through. So that that's a kind of, I guess, a negative thing from the experience. But for me personally, I think it's beneficial to be able to move forward through my life knowing that whatever comes up, I'm going to conquer it no matter yeah, what. Yeah. No matter what. So I've just always had that mindset. Shit, David. 
That was uh, uh, honestly, Dave. yeah, Dave. Yeah, sorry, Dave. Um, <laughs> uh, I just want to I want to say thanks, man. Thanks yeah. for for taking the time to come in here and share that. Um, and I, I I think this is definitely one of those like episodes that's going to have quite an effect on a lot of people. Um, so. If I mean I don't know, do you want to pl- like plug your yourself? If 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 someone's out there right now, like in yeah. in do you do you only do work here at Halifax or is it like pretty much you know we live in the fucking future right now? So yeah. so um, I do like individual stuff is mostly Halifax, but I've I'll do like Skype and FaceTime calls with people if if they need it. How can um, people reach out? Uh, if people want to get in touch, um, they can go through my email. It's going to be david at peak.ca. Um, and then our company's website is called Peak Experiences. And then we also have a, an online element to that because it's so popular these days to put your work online. So for people that don't want to speak one-on-one, they want to just be behind the comfort of their own computer, uh, we have like a bunch of online e-learning courses that specifically talk about grief and how to deal with it. Mm. Um, and that's the constructivemindsetinstitute.ca. And peak is, uh, which? What, how do you spell peak? P-E-A-K. P-E-A-K. Papa Echo Alpha Kilo. To spell it phonetically. I did that a lot as a that, cop. That's a fucking cop. That's say, the most like, cop thing I heard you say since you've been here. This guy's a narc. Yeah. <laughs> put, the, put the weed away. Just to tell a quick funny story. So my first day as a cop and I had to relay some information on the radio and get a, like a, a person check to see if they had a warrant for their arrest. So their, their name was Taylor. And <laughs> yeah, obviously, obviously people know how to spell Taylor, but for some reason, I still was Not trying Not everybody. <laughs> I, was, I was still trying to spell it um, phonetically. So I'm like, okay. So I'm going, um, Tango, Alpha, Yemen, Lima, Oscar, Romeo. And I said Yemen because the country Yemen just popped into my head. Yeah, but yeah. it's not why, it's Yankee is how you spell yeah. it. And then for about the next couple of months, everyone in the summer say Yemen. Because <laughs> <laughs> I spelled Taylor wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I'm on the phone with somebody yeah. and I'm like giving it like an alphanumerical like code or case number or something like that, I always say, I always I never use the actual terms. Oh, yeah, I, just, I don't fucking know I, what they are. I, I make it up. I just say like anything that starts with that. With yeah, that I'm like letter. I'm like dingus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, D is uh, in dingus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apples. N is in Nancy. <laughs> M M is in Mancy. Yeah, yeah. M is in Mancy. Uh, well, thanks again, David. Um, and uh, and and again, if you're if you're out there and you're looking for support. Um, uh, don't hesitate to reach out because um, clearly there's there's people out there who've who've gone through hell and back and and are there to support. So yep. yeah, and it's it's just my my mission and my goal in life is to tell my story and hope that it helps people. So yeah, I've been fortunate yeah. enough to be able to do that with people on three continents: uh, Australia, back home, and in Canada. And it's all I want to do. You know, is use what happened to me, not thinking that I've gone through worse than what you have. Just know that I have some understanding and knowledge, almost scientifically mm-hmm. and psychologically, of what might help you get through a situation. Like Must I, feel good, though, to know that you could one-up anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's not nearly as crazy as me. Yeah. 
Uh, well, thanks again, David. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, thanks so much yeah, for having me on. Thank really and thank it. you all so much for tuning in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week, as we always are. And in the meantime, go to Apple Podcasts and rate Man, and review and that hit that the subscribe so Smash that subscribe Smash. And that would be a huge support for us. And also, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash sick boy that's patreon.com slash sick boy uh yeah send out the send out the cards send out the uh send out the well, there's uh, little love letters that the, we've been the love sending letters out. and Some the patches, patches and stuff yeah. and people are loving them yeah uh thanks all y'all i've been hanging out on uh, the discord community it's been really interesting lately there's Ooh. a lot of uh fascinating conversations happening there and i think this one this episode is probably going to generate some interesting conversation over on discord as well if you want to be on our discord uh head on over to patreon.com slash sick boy and uh, thanks to Donovan the Meerkat Morgan, Donovan the C- CPAP Morgan, C-Pap. for the amazing sound design on this podcast. C-Pap. Uh, for thank- making it sound like we're at, uh, at a hoops game. The hoops. The, like a basketball game? Nope. Uh, the hoops. Like a hula, hula hoop game? He's talking about Celtic. Uh, <laughs> good man. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, good. I know some Scottish shit. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, and thanks to... Oh, yeah, the Celtic uh, Irish? Celtic are very Irish. Yeah, they're very Irish Roman as fuck. Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to, I went to, a, I went to a, I was in. Sorry, shut up, shut the fuck Donovan, up, Donovan. Donovan, 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 thank you. The Rangers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was the, it was the Rangers and Celtic, and I watched it in Newcastle, Northern Ireland. And when I, when I was going to go to the game, my buddy Jamie came up from Scotland. Came over from Scotland. I don't fucking know. He came from Scotland. We were gonna go watch the game together. He brought me a hoops jersey. And my mother-in-law, when we were going out, she was like, okay, uh, there's two pubs in town. Do not go to this one to watch the game. You must go to this one to watch the game. And she was like, and I'd probably not put that jersey on until Is that you a green, get to the green and white? The green and white, yeah. The hoops, oh, it's the, it's I didn't know that they were... The hoops around the... That's, that's what the hoops is, right? Yep. It's, it's oh, this, I didn't know that. Yeah. So she was like, yeah, you might because you might just get your fucking face smashed in if you walk into the wrong pub. She was telling the truth. I know. So, I know because I was like, Jamie, do you want to go in here? And Jamie's like, no. Absolutely. No. Hey, David, David, are you <laughs> playing soccer right now? Absolutely uh, not. Oh, I'm I can say absolutely a, okay. A little bit of a hiatus from football absolutely. just now yeah. uh, with recovering from a hamstring injury. Because I play, so if you want to play, you should play on my team. Give me a year to recover from this injury and I'll be back. David, okay, check this out. Check this out. It's not good. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. You know what? Absolutely. You, you, sound like, you sound like Sean Connery. Yeah. Well done. It's absolutely a good attempt. Absolutely. Is that better? That's a better Sean Thanks to the band Take know. Part <laughs> for the theme music. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and that's all about the music stuff. Uh, that is it for this week. <laughs> I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. Thanks, guys. I'm David. (laughs) And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.